Open up your Bibles, please, to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 19. We're going to cover approximately the first half of Luke, chapter 19, here this evening. But before we dig into the very first verse, I need to remind you of something, and it's this. Especially with an account like tonight that we start off with in Luke, chapter 19, you're going to have to use your imagination. Now, I trust when I say that, you understand I mean it in a godly sense. I'm not asking you to do some weird visualization or some new age thing or some wild speculation. I just want you to treat the biblical account for what it is. It's the story of events that actually happened. And if it actually happened, when we talk about a wee little man named Zacchaeus, he really existed. And he really did climb up into a tree. And so it's totally okay for you to play that out in your mind, too, as we say many times, to let the movie run in your head. So you ready for this? Luke chapter 19, verse 1. Then Jesus entered and passed through Jericho. Now behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus who was a chief tax collector, and he was rich. And he sought to see who Jesus was, but he could not because of the crowd, for he was of short stature. So he ran ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was going to pass that way. What a great story this is. Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. As a matter of fact, we are coming now into the last period of Jesus' life before his crucifixion. Very soon in the Gospel of Luke, we're going to be entering into Jerusalem on the triumphal entry. This is Jesus' time in Jericho just before coming to Jerusalem on that last Passover before he was crucified. And what happened? Well, there was a man in Jericho, verse 2 tells us, a man named Zacchaeus who was a chief tax collector. At that time, Jericho was an extremely prosperous city. Zacchaeus was a chief tax collector. And something else that the text tells us, he was rich. Now, why is that important? Because, ladies and gentlemen, a tax collector in those days only became rich by ripping people off ruthlessly. There was a practice in the Roman world known as tax farming. And it wasn't practiced everywhere with the Roman Empire. But at this time, in the Roman province of Palestine, it was practiced. And this is what it meant. Basically, tax collectors worked on a commission basis. And their job was to get as much money out of the individuals they could. And then they gave a percentage of that to the Roman government. And the rest of it they kept for themselves. You think it's scary going to the IRS now? Imagine if that auditor across the table from you got to keep everything extra that he could get from you. How scary would that be? So if Zacchaeus was wealthy, if he was a rich man, it meant that he had ripped a lot of people off. And his motive was to make taxes as high as possible. And he had Roman soldiers behind him backing him up. So I mean, this was a very unpopular man. Some people have related the Roman tax collector to our modern-day parking attendant, you know, or parking police. I don't know if there's anybody here who's a parking police. God bless you. But, you know, we kind of have the sense that they're necessary. But does anybody like the parking police? No, I mean, well, just keep that thing in your mind. And we love you if you're part of those wonderful public servants. Now, what's interesting about this is the name Zacchaeus, do you know what it means? It means pure one. And what a contradiction for his name. He was anything but pure. Matter of fact, I'm going to bust out a little John Trapp, that old Puritan commentator, because he has something that's just wonderful here. He says this, quote, He should have by his name been a Puritan in the best sense, 
but he was an arch publican, a public sinner, not simple but subtle, a griping extortioner, a rich but wretched sycophant. I don't even know what that means, but it sounds really, really bad. So Zacchaeus was a very unpopular man. But notice verse 3. Look at your Bibles and notice verse 3. It says something wonderful. It says, he sought to see who Jesus was. He wanted to see Jesus. He sought after him. Now maybe he had heard that this man Jesus is a man who loves terrible people like him. Maybe he heard that he's a man who reaches out to tax collectors and sinners and prostitutes and all the rest of it. And he said, if Jesus is in my town, I want to see him. I've got to see him. So what did he do? Verse 3 also tells us that he was a man of short stature. Wouldn't it be fascinating to do a psychological profile of Zacchaeus? Just in this sense. Imagine all the abuse he had suffered for being short. And how he loved loved to get back at people. And now he's in a power position like tax collector. And he was rich. So he didn't care who he made angry. What a complicated man. But he wanted to see Jesus. And nothing would stop him. Because what did he do? Verse 4. He ran ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see Jesus. Now you and I read this. and Maybe a little wee smile comes over our mouth. Because we remember that, that children's rhyme. What is it? Zacchaeus was... Come on, do it along with me. Zacchaeus was a wee little man. A wee little man was he. He climbed up into the sycamore tree because the Lord he wanted to see. All right, we didn't do the rest. Now, I want you to think about, we we just kind of pass that by. Do you understand, especially in that culture, how ridiculous it was for a grown, dignified man to climb a tree? I mean, what would you do if you saw... Uh, you know, the mayor of a city or a general in the army climbing a tree. You'd think, that's weird. Especially publicly. I'm not talking about privately in their backyard or something. Climbing a tree, you know, bunching up their garments, you know, scraping their arm, doing all the rest. But what? Zacchaeus didn't care. He didn't care because he really wanted to see Jesus. And so he did something that the whole culture would have thought that was ridiculous. Matter of fact, wouldn't you say that he acted like a little boy? It's little boys who climb trees, isn't it? And almost unknowingly, he's fulfilling that thing that Jesus said, that you won't enter into the kingdom of God unless you become like a little child. So he's doing it. He's becoming like a little child. He doesn't really know it, but that's what he's doing. So verse 5, this is wonderful. And when Jesus came to the place... He looked up and he saw him. Isn't that funny? There's a grown man in a tree. It says he looked up and he saw him and he said to him, Zacchaeus, make haste and come down for today I must stay at your house. So he made haste and came down and received him joyfully. Isn't this wonderful? Because Zacchaeus didn't care about being embarrassed, because he didn't care how foolish he looked in the sight of other people, When he worked so hard to seek after Jesus, Jesus noticed him. And you just got to say that when Jesus saw Zacchaeus, a great big smile came over his face. And what did he do? The first thing he said is, Zacchaeus. Now, how did he even know his name? Maybe people were shouting it out from the crowd. Maybe saying, hey, Zacchaeus, get down from that tree or whatever. I don't know. But Jesus called him by name. He laid claim upon him with his name. And he said, Zacchaeus, Get down here and don't be slow about it. Make haste. Hurry up and get down here. Why? 
He says, because today I must stay at your house. I love this. Jesus wasn't only interested in a religious conversion for Zacchaeus. He wanted to hang with him. I want to spend time with you. Matter of fact, I so much want to spend time with you. I'm inviting myself over to your house today. Zacchaeus, get down and make me some dinner. Isn't that wonderful? It's just something so beautiful and powerful about Jesus. And so Zacchaeus, what did he do? He came down, and it says in verse 6, that he received him. Now, Jesus invited himself over to Zacchaeus' house, but he would only actually go in if Zacchaeus responded to the invitation and received him. Jesus invited himself, but Zacchaeus received him in. And by the way, isn't this the way that Jesus works in our heart for the most part? He invites himself right on in. But then we, like Zacchaeus, we must receive him in. And that's exactly what Zacchaeus did. Matter of fact, if you look at verse 6, did you notice? It says that he received him joyfully. Zacchaeus was happy to receive Jesus. You see, Jesus had called Zacchaeus to himself and he goes, this man, he really does love people like me. He really does not just want to tell me something from the Old Testament. No, he wants to hang out with me. He wants to eat with me. I just think it's a beautiful picture. Jesus is joyful to receive sinners and they're joyful to be saved. Now, have you ever thought about this? When Jesus brings salvation to a sinner, he's happy and they're happy. Do you ever think about who's more happy? I can tell you with confidence, Jesus is more happy. You know why? Because it's more blessed to give than to receive. Are you blessed in receiving salvation? Absolutely you are. Have you ever thought that Jesus is even more blessed to give it? How wonderful that is. So he's so happy to do it. Verse seven. But when they saw it. Now I love that. Who is this? It's they. The ever present they. They saw it. When they saw it. They all complained. Saying. He has gone to be a guest with a man who is a sinner. Please notice. It wasn't only the religious leaders who made this complaint. Everybody did. Zacchaeus had that rare distinction talent of being universally hated. Everybody hated the guy. No, Jesus, this is too much. Yeah, there's a lot of -of run-of-the-mill sinners who you should reach out to and connect with. Great, we get that. But that guy, no, that's too much. I just want us to make sure that we don't have it in our mind that we would be offended if Jesus started inviting people in among us. They would say, no, 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 they're too big as sinners. I mean, we want Jesus to draw unto us great big sinners, people who really need him, and people who receive him joyfully. And that's exactly what happened with this case of Zacchaeus and Jesus. So notice now verse 8. Then Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, I give half of my goods to the poor, and if I have taken anything from anyone by false accusations... I restore fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house because he is also a son of Abraham. For the son of man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Isn't this beautiful in verse 8? Notice what it says there in verse 8. He said, Look, Lord, I restore fourfold. Zacchaeus was very public in his repentance. And he's telling everybody, yes, I know I've been ripping off the community for the past however many years. But you know what? I'm paying them back. I'm going to pay them back fourfold. Now, this got everybody very excited in town, I bet. But can you imagine what a sacrifice this was for Zacchaeus? 
he put his repentance out there for real for everybody to see. I mean, he made a public statement. Everybody would be able to call him on this one. So he sought after Jesus, but in seeking after Jesus, he also came to seek repentance. And when he said, I'm going to pay everybody back, friends, that was not a short list. That was a long list of people, but he vowed to do it. And Jesus was so blown away by this. He was so blown away by this man who said, I'm going to give money to the poor and everybody that I've cheated, I'm going to pay back. That what did Jesus say? Look at it there in verse 9. Today, salvation has come to this house. Now, I want you to draw in your mind a little bit of a contrast. Do you remember the last time we were here together on Wednesday night going through Luke? We had the case of the rich young ruler. And the rich young ruler walked away from Jesus and rejected Jesus when Jesus called upon him to sell everything that he had and to give to the poor. Do you see that Jesus did not call Zacchaeus to do what he called the rich young ruler to do? But he did call Zacchaeus to repent in the way that Zacchaeus needed to repent. And Zacchaeus did it. He said, I'm going to give money to the poor and everybody I've robbed from, I'm going to restore to them fourfold. That's why Jesus said, Today, salvation has come to this house. I love the change. In verse 7, the word is, he who is a sinner. But then in verse 9, Jesus says, no, the word isn't sinner. The word is salvation. Isn't that a beautiful changing of a thing? Now, I just got a simple question for you. Is it really true that a life can change this quickly? Absolutely, it's true. Isn't that beautiful? How powerful is that? Does anybody think Zacchaeus woke up that morning saying, hey, I think I'm going to give money to the poor and everybody that have ripped off, I'm going to pay them back times four. I can almost guarantee you Zacchaeus did not wake up in the morning saying that. Not one bit. But you know what? He met the living Savior, Jesus Christ, and in a moment, his life was radically changed. Now, I'm not trying to say that everything in Zacchaeus' life was radically changed. You know, he probably still had annoying habits that God had to work on. He still had areas that were not going to be finished, redeeming in his life until the day he went into glory. But there was something radically and truly changed in his life immediately. And friends, we just have to put a renewed faith in the power of the gospel and then the power of Jesus Christ to change people's lives that radically. Again, we don't think for a moment that everything in somebody's life is going to be changed immediately. But we look for amazing, immediate change when a person genuinely comes to Jesus. So it was a radical, radical thing that Zacchaeus experienced. And he says something else beautiful in verse 9. Did you notice that? Jesus says, because he also is a son of Abraham. I am imagining that one of the things that Zacchaeus heard a lot is... Zacchaeus, you are such a traitor. You work for the Romans. You take tax money from us. You rip us off. You're not even really a Jew. Can you imagine how many times he had been excommunicated? Maybe not from the synagogue, but from people's hearts. Jesus says, listen, this man is truly a Jewish man. He is truly a son of Abraham. And then he says something beautiful and powerful in verse 10. Jesus explains why he would ever hook up with a guy like Zacchaeus. He says, because the son of man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Zacchaeus, you great big sinner, you're the one that I've come to seek and to save. You know, 
I want us to be able to communicate in our lives and in our presence in this community that we love sinners and we want to see them come to Jesus Christ. I'm afraid sometimes that broadly, I'm not speaking specifically of our congregation, but just the Christian community at large in the United States of America, that the vibe it puts off is that it hates sinners and it expects sinners to not be sinners. You know what we expect the sinners to do? We expect them to sin. But you know what? When Jesus Christ comes into their life, that's when the changes come. So he says, the son of man has come to seek and to save that was lost. You thought Zacchaeus was seeking after Jesus by climbing up into a tree. And he was. But you know who is really doing the seeking? Jesus himself. And he brought salvation to Zacchaeus. It's a beautiful, beautiful thing. Now, going on to the next part of the chapter, verse 11. Now, as they heard these things, he spoke another parable because he was near Jerusalem and they thought that the kingdom of God would appear immediately. They're leaving Jericho. Jericho is the last significant city on the way to Jerusalem. And as they get closer and closer to Jerusalem, they're not walking alone. It's not just Jesus and his 12 disciples. They're actually in the company, and I'm just guessing here, of course, of probably hundreds of people. Why hundreds of people? Because a whole group of pilgrims is coming up to Jerusalem. Why are they coming to Jerusalem? You know, because Passover is on the way. And Passover was one of the great significant feasts that the Jews were expected to go to Jerusalem for. So there would be large groups of pilgrims, large groups of people making that trek from Jericho to Jerusalem, and there was a lot of excitement. There was a lot of excitement because this man, Jesus, had done quite a lot over the last three years. There was a lot of excitement because there was a high level of expectation, especially about the time of Passover. The disciples themselves are excited. They're speaking one to another. Hey, do you think now's the time? Is Jesus going to come on in and flex his muscles as the Messiah and take over the kingdom as everybody thinks he's due to? This is going to be wonderful. Think about the great jobs that we're going to get in his new administration. They're all picturing themselves as, you know, cabinet positions in the administration of Jesus. As soon as Jesus comes in and assumes his kingdom, because this is what he's going up to Jerusalem to do. Yes, they're so excited. Notice that. That's what it means when it says in verse 11, Because they thought the kingdom of God would appear immediately. Friends, this was everybody's expectation, but they were wrong. There's a Christian writer of a few generations ago named George MacDonald. He actually had a pretty good influence on C.S. Lewis. George MacDonald wrote a pretty little rhyme that I think expresses their thinking pretty well. He says this, They were all looking for a king to slay their foes and lift them high. He came a little baby thing that made a woman cry. You see, they had their expectations for the Messiah to come and triumph and especially to kick out the hated Romans. She said, no, this my first coming, I'm coming in humility, I'm coming in service, and I'm coming to be the sin-bearing servant to bring salvation to the world. So they thought that the kingdom of God would appear immediately. And now Jesus is going to tell them a parable to correct some of those misunderstandings. Now I need to tell you something about this parable before we begin it in verse 12. 
this parallel is, excuse me, this parable is actually very rich in historical allusions. There was a son of Herod the Great named Archelaus. And Archelaus very famously, when his father Herod the Great died, he wanted to inherit uh, Herod's kingdom. So he went to Rome and asked Caesar for the right to inherit Herod the Great's kingdom. Well, the problem was everybody hated Archelaus. And the Jews who lived in that area, they sent a delegation to Rome and they pled with Caesar and Caesar's representatives, please don't give Archelaus the kingdom of his father, Herod the Great. He's a horrible ruler. So what did uh, Caesar do? Caesar sort of split the difference. He gave him part of Herod the Great's kingdom and he made him sort of a sub-king, not a head king. But this is basically the same historical situation that Jesus shapes this parable from, starting now at verse 12. Therefore he said, A certain nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and to return. So he called ten of his servants, delivered to them ten minas, and said to them, Do business till I come. Okay, you got this? Verse 12 tells us, a certain nobleman goes into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and to return. Now, I need to point something out. Matthew chapter 25 contains what we call the parable of the talents. Where a master gives talents to different servants in his household. This is different than the parable of the talents. This is the parable of the minas. I know it's a weird word. But it's a unit of money. A mina was a unit of money that was less than a talent. A mina was worth, you know what, there's different debates about how much it was actually worth. Most people say that it was worth about three months wages for a working man. So it wasn't a huge amount, but it wasn't insignificant. I mean, obviously it was something. About three months wages, it was worth much less than a talent. Now, Notice what he does. In verse 12, it says that he delivered to them uh, 10 minus, or actually that's in verse 13. He distributed them equally among his servants. By the way, that's different in the parable of the talents. In the parable of the talents, he gives more talents to one servant, less to another, and still less to a third. In the parable of the minas, he gives the same amounts to each one. 10 servants, 10 minas, each one gets one mina. And what does he tell them to do in verse 13? Hey, I'm going away. Do business until I come. In other words, the king has not yet received his kingdom. He's going away to receive it. While he's gone, he gives uh, resources to his people and he tells them, you do business with these resources until I return. By the way, this is a pretty powerful parable so far, isn't it? Isn't Jesus telling his disciples through this parable? He's telling them, I am not going to receive my kingdom immediately. I'm going to go away and I'm going to receive my kingdom later. And when I go, I'm going to leave resources to you. I'm going to leave spiritual and perhaps even material resources to you. And you are expected to use those resources for my glory. I'm going to give them to you equally. You're all going to have the same number of resources But do business until I come. In other words, when I go, just don't sit and twiddle your thumbs and wait for the king to come back. 
Get busy with what he's given you until he leaves. Do business until he comes back. Friends, this is a powerful picture of the sort of attitude that we're supposed to have until the return of Jesus. Now, I ended 2013 hoping that Jesus was going to come in the last few days of 2013. Will you ride along there with me? All right, now, I'm holding out great hope for 2014. Let's make this, well, not that we can make it, but let's put our hope on this being the year that Jesus returns. I mean, it can't happen soon enough for me. Nevertheless, nevertheless, Jesus wants me and he wants you to live sometimes with the mentality that he's not going to come back for 100 years. Matter of fact, if I really think that Jesus is going to come back soon, why would I plant a fruit tree? In my backyard, we planted several fruit trees. And they're not going to bear good fruit for a few years. Why would we plant them if we believe Jesus is going to come back soon? Because he told us, do business until I come. Have a long-range perspective, and you serve me diligently now, and that will prepare us the best way for his coming. So that's what he told him to do. Now look at verse 14. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we will not have this man to reign over us. In other words, the noblemen hated, the citizens hated this king who went off to receive his kingdom. And they said, we do not want him to reign over us. Verse 15. And so it was that when he returned, having received the kingdom... He then commanded these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him that he might know how much every man had gained by trading. Then came the first saying, Master, your mina has earned ten minas. And he said to him, Well done, good and servant, because you are faithful and very little have authority over ten cities. And the second came saying, Master, your mina has earned five minas. Likewise, he said to him, You also shall be over five cities. Now I want you to notice something. The people who didn't want the master to come back as king, could they prevent him? No. The ones who said, we will not have this man to reign over us. You know what happened? He came back and he reigned over them. It didn't do anything to stop him from reigning. But when he came back, he did not deal first with those who opposed his reign. Who did he deal first with? He dealt with his servants to whom he had gave the minas. He wanted an accounting from his own servants first. You could say that this is an illustration of the principle that judgment begins at the house of God. First, he did not deal with his enemies who wanted to resist his his coming in as king. No, first, he dealt with his servants. And what did he do? Well, he said, okay, you, I gave you a mina. What did you do with it? And he said, verse 16, Master, your mina has earned 10 minas. That's a pretty good report. He did business with the master's mina, and he had 10 more to show for it. I'm pretty bad at math. Is that a 1,000% increase? Is somebody good at math? Is that, is that accurate? All right, good. That's a 1,000% increase. One mina into 10. That's a pretty good percentage, don't you think? You, if anybody here has a secret to 1,000% investing... Have a little talk with me afterwards. That's pretty good. This guy turned one mina into ten. Fantastic. So what does the master say? He says, well done, good servant, because you were faithful in a very little, 
have authority over 10 cities because he demonstrated faithful handling of the master's resources. He was given authority over 10 cities in the kingdom that the master just received. Hooray, good servant. You did a great job. And now as a reward, you get authority in my kingdom. What about the second guy? Verse 18. He says, Master, your mina has earned five minas. Now, by the way, I want you to notice something very interesting that the first two guys say. They say, your mina has earned ten. Your mina has earned five. These guys are very humble. They're not going like this. Master, I'm such a brilliant investor. I earned you a thousand percent return. They're not saying that. No matter of fact, they're giving credit to the master. Your mina has earned 10 minas or 5 minas. That's pretty good. Well, anyway, this was a 500% increase. And he gets a reward as well. He hears those words, well done. No, excuse me. He doesn't hear the words, well done, good servant. But he does get five cities over which he will have authority. Okay, those are the first two servants. Now, there were 10 in total. We're only told about three of them. So maybe it's divided into three groups that were like this. It doesn't really matter. Look at the third servant starting now at verse 20. Look at this carefully. Then another came saying, Master, here is your mina, which I have kept put away in a handkerchief. For I feared you because you are an austere man. You collect what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. And he said to him, Out of your own mouth I will judge you, you wicked servant. You knew that I was an austere man, collecting what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank? And at my coming I might have collected it with interest. And he said to those who stood by, Take the mina from him and give it to he who has ten minas. But they said, Master, he has ten minas. For I say to you that everyone, that to everyone who has will be given... And from him who does not have, even what he has will be taken away from him. Did you check out that third servant? He runs to the master. He opens up a handkerchief. He goes, here's your mina. See, I buried it. I put it in a handkerchief. Isn't that great? I didn't lose anything on it. What was the master's reaction? Oh, goody, you didn't do anything with it. You kept it. No, the master was angry. I want you to notice something. This servant used an excuse. Have you ever looked carefully at the excuse the servant used? Look at the excuse the servant uses. It's in verse 21. You collect what you did not deposit and you reap what you do not sow. Think carefully about those words. You collect what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. Ladies and gentlemen, somebody who can do that They're sovereign. They don't need anybody's help. They can do it all on their own. Master, you didn't need my help at all. You are so mighty. You are so sovereign. You don't need my help one bit, so I didn't do anything. I just want you to pause just for a moment. Have you ever thought that you would not serve God that you would not testify for him, that you would not represent him because God is so sovereign and so mighty that he doesn't really need you? That is the wicked attitude of the third servant. Lord, you're so amazing. You do everything. You rule from heaven. You don't need little old me. God says, I do not want you to think that way. 
You do not think that way at all. As a matter of fact, notice what he says in verse 22. Out of your own mouth I will judge you, you wicked servant. You knew that I was an austere man. The master did not reward the third servant. He rebuked him because the great power and even sovereignty of the master should have inspired him to work harder instead of not doing anything. And that's the great lesson from this parable. By the way, it also helps us to understand the plan of the master. Did the master need the servants to make money? No. This master collects what he did not deposit and he reaps what he did not. So he didn't need the servants to make money for him. No, you know what he needed the servants to do? He needed the servants not to make money for him, but he needed the servants to do what they did for the building of their character. To make them trustworthy servants. And that's what this third servant failed in utterly. So much so, verse 24 says, take the mina from him and give it to he who has ten minas. The third servant had everything taken from him. Now, he remained the master's servant, but he was left with nothing. He proved himself utterly unable to manage the master's things, and so he had no thing of the master to manage. And Jesus emphasized this by saying in verse 26, For I say to you that everyone who has will be given, and from him who does not have, even what he has will be taken away from him. Now please, I want you to notice something. In the idea of this parable, the third servant did not lose his salvation. In the idea of this parable. No, those people who are going to be under judgment, they're going to come up in just the next verse. But what did this servant lose? He lost any meaningful service for the master. Ladies and gentlemen, Jesus Christ is going to return to this earth. He is a king who has gone away to receive his kingdom. And he has put us to work with his resources right here, right now. Now, I tell you, he has given us all the gospel and he's given us all the word and he's given it to us equally, like one mina given to each person. What we do with it and what we do with this Christian life that he has given us will determine what place we have when he comes back in his kingdom and uses us to help rule this earth. And I have to believe that there are some people who will be effectually doing nothing in the millennial kingdom. They will have nothing to serve with because they prove themselves all so unfaithful. They won't go to hell. No, 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 they'll be saved. Heaven will be for them. The millennium will be for them. But they could have enjoyed the inexpressible joy of working together with the master and they forfeited it. That's heavy, isn't it? Not as heavy as verse 27 with which we're going to conclude. But bring here those enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them and slay them before me. Whoa. Do you get this picture now? You see, Jesus isn't just coming and talking about how he's going to judge believers and distribute rewards. That's the servants. Now he's going to talk about what's going to happen to those who reject the king and work against his kingdom. And he says, oh, you cried out and you said, we don't want this man to reign over us. How's that working out for you? 
He's going to reign over you whether you like it or not. And either you're going to benefit from his reign or you're going to suffer under his reign. Ladies and gentlemen, this is the message we got for the rule. King Jesus is going to reign over this earth. That's all there is to it. You can laugh at it. You can deny it. You can mock it. You can whatever. You do whatever you want with it. But it's a fact that's going to happen. And either you're going to get with his program and benefit from his reign. Or his reign is going to be a terror to you. Because you can say all day long, I don't want him to reign over me. But you're going to be among those for whom every knee will bow and every tongue will confess in heaven and in hell and in all creation. And they will say, Jesus Christ is Lord. Do you see how Jesus is putting things in perspective as he approaches Jerusalem? He's telling them, I'm not going to take my kingdom right away. No, I'm going to go away and receive that kingdom later. What's key to you and I now is being faithful with what he's given us, with doing business till he comes, in everything he's given us to do, and surrendering to his reign right here, right now, so that when he does come back, it's a benefit to us. Father, that's a heavy place to end this evening's study. And I just pray that you'd use us as messengers in our life, Lord, with whatever way you give us to, to, to communicate with other people. Lord, there's dozens of ways that we can actually communicate with others. We pray that you help us to do it in a way that prepares people for King Jesus, for his reign, for his righteousness. Lord, in so doing, We want to be good and faithful servants, even if what you give us seems so little in the sight of the world. We want to be like those who return unto you ten minas and say to you, look, Lord, your mina has earned ten minas. Help us to do it, Lord, and to bring you glory as good and faithful servants. We pray this in Jesus' name.